Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where we'll be here in just a bit. Um, in the part of town where I live, there are two fast food restaurants. There's also more than two because this is Fountain City. There's all kinds of fast food restaurants, but namely two that I would like to talk about this morning. They are directly across the street from each other, but the experience that you get at these two fast food restaurants could not be further apart from each other. One of them is a Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Going to the Chick-fil-A is a little like what I would imagine heaven is going to be like (laughs) if heaven had peanut oil. You roll up to the drive-thru, excuse me, the double drive-thru, and there's no intercom for anyone to yell at you through. There's a warm, smiling face with a headset and an iPad, at least most times during the day. They greet me before I've even come to a complete stop. Hi there, it's a great 72-degree fall day at Chick-fil-A. How can I serve you? I give them my order. They ask me what sauces that I would like and how many I would like of each one. And get this, they actually give me those sauces in that amount. Unbelievable attention to detail at Chick-fil-A. So I pull around to the window where another smiling face gives me the first part of my order. And then he asks me a question. Got anything fun planned today? Now, little do I know, he is just stalling for a moment to see if he can avoid me having to pull around to get the rest of my order because it's not, because it's not ready yet. But that doesn't even cross my mind in the moment. I just think that this 16-year-old high school student is really invested in my day. <laughs> I grab the rest of my order, which is now fresh out of the fryer because of the stalling, of course. And I don't even check to see what's in the bag because I'm positive they got all of it right. And even if they gave me something different than what I ordered, this is Chick-fil-A, they probably gave me that because I needed what they gave me more than what I ordered. (laughs) Deep down, somewhere. That, more often than not, at least, is the Chick-fil-A experience. That's what you expect if you roll up to a Chick-fil-A, really anywhere in the country, minus maybe except for the student union at UT. Then it all bets are off, completely different experience, but anywhere else that there's a Chick-fil-A, it's something like that. Just absolutely delightful experience. And honestly, because of that, if it were only ever up to me personally, I would probably only ever go to the Chick-fil-A near my house. But here's the thing, I have kids. (laughs) Namely, I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and a lot of the time, my kids prefer the other fast food establishment near me. The one across the street from the Chick-fil-A, I won't give you the name of this other restaurant, just because I don't want to trash anyone, I don't want to badmouth anyone, but let's just say it has arches, just for purposes of illustration, just so you can picture it in your mind. So I roll up to this other establishment's drive-through, 
And they also have a double drive-thru, but it's not even a little bit the same as the Chick-fil-A double drive-thru. There are exactly zero iPads or smiling faces. I sit in front of the intercom for what feels like about 25 minutes before hearing anything, just complete silence. I think to myself, is anyone there? Is this restaurant even open? Has it been open recently? Does this restaurant even exist? Do I even exist as a person or have I actually deceived myself <laughs> into thinking that I am a person because this restaurant 100% does not believe there is a person in the drive-thru at this moment. But then, after the full 25 minutes, a voice comes over the intercom. It oscillates between inaudibly quiet and approximately 200 times too loud there's no excitement in their voice. There's no fall weather update that they give me. There's just two words, go ahead. <laughs> so I order my food. They ask me to slow down when giving my order three different times. But we finally get it figured out, or at least so I think. I order a milkshake, but they quickly remind me of what I should have remembered already. It is after 8 p.m. and their ice cream machine breaks at precisely 8 p.m. every single night of the week. I should have known that that was the case. That's my mistake. Then I pull around to get my order. The person at the window asked me what I ordered. I tell them that I just told them that. And I tell them it shouldn't actually be hard to figure out what I ordered because I am in fact the only car in this drive-through right now. There should be nothing to mix it up with, but me and this person at the window, we figure it out together with our detective skills. We figure out what I ordered. They hand me my order. I pull up to a parking spot and start looking through my bag because there's not a chance that I am leaving without knowing that I got everything in my order. I start looking through the bag and I quickly discover that not only is my bag missing a couple of things, there's actually not a single thing in my bag that I did order. This is an entirely different meal than the one that I ordered at the window, but because of where I am and its reputation, I just sigh deeply and I think to myself, well, I guess this is what I deserve. <laughs> and, I pull, and I pull out of the drive-thru, head home to eat my filet of fish and McCafe Frappuccino <laughs> for breakfast. So, I tell you all of that because I evidently have some pent-up frustration that I need to get off my chest. That's the first reason. And evidently, I needed a place to share. But I also tell you that because I think it serves as an illustration of sorts. I think it illustrates for us the power of a place's name and the reputation associated with that name. Because as I mentioned, when you roll up to a Chick-fil-A, when you see that logo on the side of their building, you expect a certain experience, at least a majority of the time. There's a, there's a reputation associated with the name Chick-fil-A. And inversely, when I describe my experience at the other establishment, aside from me giving it away a little bit with the arches, I didn't even have to say the name of the place and you probably all knew immediately the establishment that I was talking about. The name of a place and the reputation associated with that name, those things are actually a very big deal. They carry real weight in our minds and in our expectations. And my point is that if that is true with something as trivial as fast food restaurants, how much more is that true when it comes to God's name, God's reputation? That, in essence, 
is what the third commandment in the Ten Commandments is about. It's about God's name and God's reputation. So take a look with me once again at our text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. It says this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So this commandment is about not misusing God's name. Or if you grew up in a church like the one I grew up in, you might be more familiar with the King James translation of this command. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That is the essence of the third commandment. Now, growing up, I was told a number of different things about what this particular commandment actually meant. One of the most common explanations I was given was that this commandment was essentially about how you shouldn't cuss. That's God's point. Don't use foul language of any sort or kind, which is funny on account of how that's not at all what the verse says. Now, I'm happy to let people debate whether or not the Bible as a whole teaches that, but my point right now is that that's not really what this commandment is referring to in the Bible. Another explanation I often got in regards to this commandment was that this commandment is about how you shouldn't use the word God unless you're talking to or about God. That was what I often heard. You certainly shouldn't say JC as a cuss word in your everyday life, and you shouldn't even really say things like, oh my God, since that would be taking his name in vain. And then my late grandmother, who was a lifelong Sunday school teacher, told me once that I also shouldn't say things like gosh or gah or golly, since those were derivatives of the word God. They were just sneaky ways of me taking God's name in vain, ways for me to sort of skirt around the rules that she had already given me about not using the word God in vain. And in her defense, that was a 100% accurate assessment of what I was doing in those moments. But whether or not you think this commandment is prohibiting the sorts of things that I've already mentioned or not, I think the truth is that this command actually goes deeper than all of that. I think this commandment actually addresses way more than just our words and how we use words. It is that, but it's way more than that. So let's talk about what this commandment, the third one in the list, might be referring to. I think it's helpful to break down what this commandment means by talking about at least two forms that misusing God's name or taking God's name in vain often presents itself as. So the first is what we might call bearing God's name in vain. Bearing God's name in vain. Bearing God's name in vain happens anytime that we associate ourselves with Jesus without any earnest intentions of actually following Jesus, of embodying the things that he calls his people to embody in life. It, it's to say, I'm a Christian when nothing substantial about your life reflects that claim. So there's a weird phenomenon I've noticed in America in general, and in the South particularly, and that's that people will almost use the word Christian around here, like it's sort of a catch-all category. I meet people, and sooner or later, the topic of religion will come up, and sometimes I'll hear them say, oh, I'm a Christian too. But if I ask even a few basic cursory follow-up questions about what they mean by I'm a Christian, it becomes obvious pretty quickly that they are not defining that word Christian the same way I am. 
What they mean by that statement often is that they have some sort of vague belief in the Judeo-Christian God, or at least that they grew up in a family that believed in that God. And if that's true of them, and they're not Muslim, or they're not Hindu, or they're not atheist, well then that must mean that they're a Christian, sort of by default. But according to the scriptures, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not some sort of category that you end up in by default. According to the scriptures, being a Christian means that you have accepted the fact that Jesus died in your place for your sin, that his perfect life and resurrection stands in your place. It means that you believe you have right relationship with God through those things, through Jesus, and in response to that, you are choosing to align every arena of your life as best you can with those realities. That is what the scriptures mean when they talk about being a follower of Jesus. Now, as we try to specify often around here at City Church, that does not mean that you are claiming to do any of that perfectly as a Christian, not at all. That's not you saying that you think every single thing about your life is perfectly reflective of what the scriptures say that our lives should look like as followers of Jesus. None of us are in that category, and if you say that you are, you're lying, which is against the Ten Commandments, which means you're not in that category. All of us probably have areas of our lives that are currently more reflective of the kingdom of God and other areas of our lives that we would say, we would admit, are less reflective of the kingdom of God. That that is just part of maturing and growing as a follower of Jesus. But at the same time, I want you to understand that there is actually no category in the Bible for a person who calls themselves a Christian and has no actual desire to align their life with things the scriptures teach. Biblically, the category for that would be non-Christian. Regardless of what you say that you are, or what words you use to describe yourself. And to call yourself a Christian while taking that sort of nonchalant approach to your life and obedience to God is in essence to bear the name of God in vain. The Bible actually takes this idea very seriously, both in the Old Testament, places like Deuteronomy 5, and in the New Testament. So I want you to look with me on the screen at an example of this from the New Testament. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here in this passage, in context, Paul is discussing a particular instance of sexual sin within the Corinthian church at the time. And in his instructions to the church on how they should deal with this situation, he says this. But now, Paul says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the, what's that next word? Name. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, Christian, follower of Jesus. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Do you hear the seriousness with which Paul treats this? He says, if there is a person that you know of within your community bearing the name of Jesus, calling themselves a Christian, and they are actively engaging in unrepentant sin of any type, you should not, quote, even associate with them. Now, just for clarity, other parts of the Bible tell us that there is a process 
to doing this. So he's not saying like, just stop re responding to their calls and texts and be like, I, I guess you gotta figure out why I'm not talking to you. Like that's not, that's not what Paul's saying. You're, you're actually very specific about engaging whatever this thing is and then there's a process that you go through. It's lined out in other places of the Bible. But at the same time, there's a seriousness to it. There's a, a very deep seriousness to it, according to Paul. In Paul's mind, it is not okay for a person to claim the title of follower of Jesus while refusing to align parts of their lives with what the scriptures teach. And the reason it's not okay, Paul says, is because of the shame and reproach that it brings upon God's name. It's misusing his name. So there's another place in the book of Romans where I think this idea becomes even more obvious, where Paul engages it in these terms even more. Paul is engaging here with Jewish followers of Jesus on some areas of unrepentant sin in their life, and he says this, quoting directly from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, i.e., because of your sin, because of the unrepentance of your sin. So, so notice to Paul here, sin isn't just bad because it hurts people or because it's a breaking of the rules or even because it breaks God's heart. All of that may be true about sin, but sin is also bad, according to this passage in Romans chapter two, because it blasphemes, or, or maybe in our language today, because it trashes God's name, God's reputation. It, it makes the world think that God is someone other than who he is. And that makes it a massive, massive problem, according to the scriptures. God does not appreciate people attaching their life to his reputation while putting forth no effort to make their lives reflective of his reputation. Which is why, according to the third commandment, God will not, quote, hold anyone guiltless who does that. Those are strong words. So listen, I realize that none of this makes us terribly comfortable to talk about. This feels intense to a lot of us, especially if we don't have much of a background in church. But let me help you understand, if I can, the significance of this, maybe from the outside looking in. So nearly everywhere that I go nowadays, especially through my lens as a pastor, nearly everywhere I go, I will hear people talk about how they're not interested in Jesus because the church is corrupt or the church leaders are corrupt or Christians are, are corrupt. People will say, well, the church is so abusive. It's so broken. It's not representative of what I feel like the Bible says. That I'll hear people say that they are not interested in Jesus because of the church. I'm sure you have heard people say stuff like that too. And, and, and when people say that, I think there are at least two things going on behind it. One is just that sin makes everyone want to reject Jesus, and most of the time, people will grab any old excuse to justify why they're doing that. I think that's part of it. But the other thing that is happening, I think a lot of the time, is that when the church has not dealt with sin swiftly and directly, when instead we have let sin grow and fester and become normative, in circles of communities of followers of Jesus. And specifically, when we've allowed people to call themselves Christians that have no actual desire to align their lives with Jesus, all of that actually harms the reputation of Jesus in the world. 
Using the label Christian to describe people and activities and postures that are in no way reflective of Jesus, over time, that has an impact on the reputation of Jesus in the world. Which is why the third commandment says emphatically, do not misuse the name of Jesus. Do not misuse the name of God. That is why it matters that we not take God's name in vain. Okay, believe it or not, that was all the first point. Here's the second one. The second form that I think it often takes when we misuse God's name is what we might call invoking God's name in vain. Invoking God's name in vain. So invoking God's name in vain is when we cite God's name in situations or circumstances where it doesn't rightly belong. It's, it's when we hyper-spiritualize things or, or use God as a cop-out or a trump card in scenarios where we feel like we need one. Basically, saying God told me so when we know deep down that isn't actually what happened. So, so it's saying to someone, for instance, God told me we need to break up when what we really mean is I wanted to break up and I didn't want the reason to sound shallow, so I'm blaming it on God. Saying things like, well, God has just really blessed me when referring to material possessions when what we really mean is, well, I've spent a long time not being generous so that I could have enough to afford this lifestyle that I prefer saying things like, God told me to find another church, when what you mean is, I'm kind of bored with the church that I'm at, or I have conflict here at this church that I don't want to work through with people, so it's just easier for me to go find somewhere else. Or how about this one? Saying things like, I really feel like God wants me to blank. Whatever's in that blank. Whether it's moving to another city or quitting my job or taking a different job or saying yes to this or that opportunity. Sometimes we like to invoke God's name for things like that when all we really mean is, this seems best or desirable to me right now and that's what I'm gonna do. Maybe we say things like, well, I've prayed about it a lot and I think I'm going to blank. When, if we're just completely honest, what we mean is, I thought about praying about it once. I didn't really pray at all, but here's what I'm going to do. All of those types of things, and, and plenty more along those lines, are examples of misusing God's name, invoking God's name in vain. Now, I do wanna be really, really clear here. God absolutely speaks to people about any and all of those things that I just mentioned. God does sometimes tell people to break off a dating relationship. God does sometimes bless people, even materially. God, God does sometimes lead people to go to a different church. He tells people to take different jobs and to move, to say yes or no to certain opportunities, for sure. God often gives people guidance on decisions for them to make when they pray. All of that happens. God does all of that a lot of the time. I'm not saying it is wrong to say stuff like that when we genuinely believe that we've heard from God on whatever it is. But I am saying that it is wrong to invoke God's name in situations that you know full well had very little to do with him. We should not take God's name and attach it to little more than our wishes, desires, and preferences. 
And we certainly shouldn't do that in an effort to prevent having to listen to ways he does want to speak to us. Through things like wisdom from the scriptures, wise counsel from people who know Jesus and love us, parameters that he has set into place for his glory and for our good. To invoke God's name as a way to dodge any of those things is to misuse his name. It is to take his name in vain. It's to co-opt his name and his reputation, which was meant to be unique and special and holy and all of that, and attach it to something that is far less than that. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about when we speak about invoking God's name in vain. So I also wanted to show you a New Testament case study on this one to help you see kind of how it works, why it's a problem. So if you've read through the Gospels much, you'll notice that Jesus has pretty regular run-ins with a group of people called the Pharisees. You may have heard this word before. The Pharisees were essentially the religious elite of Jesus' day. They were viewed by most people as sort of the authorities on what a life lived for God and in obedience to God should look like. Jesus, however, you'll know if you read through the Gospels, Jesus did not usually share this high opinion of the Pharisees and the things that they did and the things that they said, at least not a majority of the time. And in the passage that we're about to look at on screen, Jesus is actually confronting the Pharisees about a particular habit of theirs that he doesn't really like, that he thinks is off base in a number of different ways. So here's what he says. This is Mark 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. And he continued, he being Jesus, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now, just for clarity, that's sarcasm. If you were confused on that, this is not actually a compliment from Jesus. He's being sarcastic here. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you, Pharisees, say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, which means devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So here's what was happening. As Jesus says, the Old Testament actually made it clear that people are to honor their parents. Coincidentally, we're actually going to cover that commandment in the Ten Commandments in two weeks here during this series. But honoring one's parents, that could, that could include a lot of things that we're going to unpack in a couple weeks, but it certainly would include things like helping them when they're in need or, or financially providing for them when they're in need of financial assistance. But at the time, the Pharisees had kind of constructed for themselves a little loophole to this commandment about caring for your mom and your dad. They would essentially tell people, they would teach people that if they designated a certain portion of their money and possessions as Corbin, it was sort of a, a tag that they would give over certain parts of their income, that if they devoted that to God, then they didn't have to use that money to care for their parents. They didn't have to help their parents when they were in need. They would say things like, sorry, I would use this money to care for you as my ailing parents, but I've actually already devoted that money to God, so it's off limits. I can't help you. So you see the issue here. The Bible told people, point blank, to honor their parents. The Pharisees were using God, 
using the name of God to avoid doing things that the Bible clearly commanded. Hence, Jesus' critique of them in Mark chapter 7, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. They were invoking God's name to do something that was inconsistent completely with God's reputation. So here's what I think this tells us about why exactly it is so wrong to invoke God's name in vain. It's because often, when we invoke God's name in these ways, we end up misrepresenting the things that God is all about. When we invoke God's name as the reason that we are ending a romantic relationship, we end up bypassing an opportunity to be honest with that brother or sister about the actual reason that we're breaking up with them. Sometimes it could be a reason that is actually helpful for them to know. If what we mean is I'm breaking up with you because of this not so great part of your character, but you don't say that, that's actually shortchanging that other person. That's avoiding an opportunity to help them grow. And yes, I do get that having the conversation in that way is a thousand times more awkward. I'm not taking that away from you. But I'm saying even though it's awkward, it could be more consistent with God's character to have that honest conversation. It could be more consistent with his desire for that other person's life, for you to be honest with them about the reason. When we invoke God's name as the reason that we're leaving a church, we may be doing something in that moment that is completely incompatible with God's character. If we are leaving a church or a community because there is conflict that we don't want to do the work of working through, then we are making God the one to blame for something that is very inconsistent with God's character. Because just for clarity, God is about reconciliation. Uh, not to overstate it, but can you imagine how much more beautiful and unified a picture of the church would exist in the world if a lot of the denominations that decided to split immediately would have seriously worked towards reconciliation. God is about reconciliation. So let's not use his name as an opportunity for division. When we invoke God's blessing, when we invoke God's name and say he's really blessed me as, as the reason that we have a lot of material possessions, we may be actually circumventing the work that he wants to do in us in the direction of sacrificial generosity. Something that is arguably far more consistent with his reputation than you having a lot of nice material possessions. And we could go on with examples on this front. But when we invoke God's name to justify doing things that have very little to do with him, we often end up tarnishing the reputation of God in the world. We end up corrupting people's view and understanding of the God of the Bible. That is why God says that he will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And, and just if you stop to think about this for just a moment, I, I think we would often feel the same way God does. Have you ever had the experience where you're meeting someone for the very first time 
And as you introduce yourself, the first thing they say is, wow, I've heard so much about you. Does that make anybody else just a little bit paranoid? Am <laughs> I the only one? Like, I have to actively resist the urge to be like, well, what have you heard? We're going to need to schedule a second meeting now because I need to know where you heard things about me and what those things were. For some of us, at least, I think that makes us very uncomfortable. But, but even if not, dial it up a notch from there. Imagine that you meet somebody for the very first time and, and they immediately start operating out of a bunch of untrue negative things that they've heard about you before you even met them. They apparently have heard from multiple people that you're a pretty terrible person, that you're difficult to get along with, you're difficult to please, you're difficult to be around, and just an all-around horrible human being. And let's say it becomes obvious as they're interacting with you that they already believe that about you before you've even had a chance to make an impression of your own. Would you not be pretty frustrated that someone had done that? That someone had shaped your reputation in the eyes of this other person before you even had an opportunity to show them who you were. I would bet a lot of us would be pretty angered by that. And listen, if that is how passionate we are about our own reputation, imagine how passionate God must be about his. Imagine how important it must be to him that people get to experience who he really is and not have his reputation marred in advance by a bunch of people who have misrepresented him by people bearing his name in vain, invoking his name in vain. This is why the third commandment is so very important. It matters immensely that we not tarnish God's name, God's reputation by misrepresenting him to the world, that we, that we not misuse his name and his reputation. Which, if we are thinking about it, leaves us with a very practical question to answer in the rest of our time. Because the reality is, all of us in this room have at one point or another misrepresented the name and reputation of Jesus. Every person in this room, any of us who claim to follow Jesus have been guilty and are guilty a lot of the time of misusing God's name. We have all at one point or another been guilty of bearing his name in vain. We've claimed to be a follower of Jesus and had aspects of our lives that are blatantly inconsistent with that claim. We've been guilty of invoking his name in vain, using God as cover for decisions that we made that were actually just driven by our own preferences and convenience and comfort. All of us are guilty of this. And if you don't think that you are, I don't know that you're very self-aware as a follower of Jesus. Every day of my life, I do and say things that are inconsistent with the name and reputation of Jesus. All of us do. So the question that we're left with is what do we do with that? What do we do with that reality? What, what do we do with the guilt of misusing God's name? If the third commandment says that God will not hold anyone guiltless who does this, then where are we to take the guilt that we have for doing it? To answer that question, I want you to look with me at one more passage on the screen. This is 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. 
This is one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture because I think in it we're told very specifically what we should do with guilt of all types, including the type of guilt that we're discussing this morning for misusing the name of God. Here's what John says, 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So John here is speaking figuratively. He's he's using light and darkness as metaphors, but the point that he is making is actually strikingly similar to everything we've been talking about this morning so far. He says essentially, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, which means that if you say you have fellowship with God, if you bear the name of follower of Jesus, if you claim to know God, worship God, follow God, but you walk in the darkness, that means you are lying to the world about who God is. That's John's point. But I want you to pay close attention to what John says is the alternative to walking in darkness. Continuing in verse seven of 1 John chapter one, he says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. He then circles back and reiterates this idea. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But look at this next part. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so if you're paying attention, that's actually different than what you might logically expect him to say. Just logically speaking, you might expect him to say that the opposite of sinning is not sinning, right? So if your problem is sin, you should just instead decide to not sin and then God will accept you and you'll be in the right. You'll be good with him. Or in the example of everything that we've discussed this morning, if it's wrong to misrepresent God, to tarnish his name and his reputation, then the opposite of that would just be to represent him really, really well. Like be the best at it. Stop misusing the name of Jesus all the time and instead use it correctly all of the time. And then you're good. Then you're all set with God. That's, my, that's what you might expect him to say. The only problem with that is, like I said just a moment ago, pretty much none of us are capable of doing that. In fact, we've all proven ourselves, if we're honest, quite incapable of doing that, at least with any sort of consistency. So it's absolutely fantastic news then that that's not at all what John says we must do. Instead, here's what John says is the alternative. Instead of vowing to do right what you've always managed to do wrong, John simply says you should do one thing, confess. Confess your sins. That's the Bible's language for being honest with yourself, with God, and with others about the ways that you have failed, the ways that you have sinned, about the ways that you have misrepresented and misused God's name, among other things, about the ways that you have been bearing God's name in vain, invoking God's name in vain. Be brutally honest about all of that. Own it. And the moment you do that, John says, here's what happens. God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's it. He he does not say that God will do all of that once you prove yourself righteous. 
He doesn't say that once you prove yourself righteous, God will forgive you. He does not say that once you show yourself and other people that you will do better in the future, he will forgive you. He does not say that once you've spent time representing God accurately to make up for all the ways that you've represented him inaccurately, then God will forgive you. He says that once you confess, God forgives you. And not only that, not only does it say that God will forgive you, that passage just said that God will also purify you. Do you know what it means for someone to be purified, biblically speaking? It means their guilt is removed. God doesn't hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. But God also doesn't consider anyone guilty who is in Jesus. What Jesus accomplished on the cross means that anyone who walks in the light with him can be purified no matter what they've done. Anyone who walks in the light with him who confesses their sin can be purified and cleansed of all of their guilt. Which means the best, most productive thing that you can do with your sin right now is confess it. The best thing you can do with any of the moments where you have misused God's name is to own it before God and before other people. And in the very moment that you do that, scripture says you are clean. You are guiltless before God. This is the incredible news that followers of Jesus call the gospel. So here's how we're gonna respond this morning before we're done. As always, I'm gonna invite all of you, anyone in the room who's a follower of Jesus, to come to the tables at a moment and take of the bread and the cup along with us. Doing that is a physical reminder that the body and blood of Jesus actually purifies us from the inside out. But precisely because that is what communion is and that's what it represents, I'm gonna ask you that you pause and consider one question before you come to the tables and take communion. The question is this, is there anywhere in my life where I have misused the name of God? where I've been actively misrepresenting him. We've talked about some different forms that could take in our time this morning, so I'm just gonna trust the voice of the Holy Spirit to bring to mind whatever it might be in your life right now, if there is something. And if there is, I want you to just take the time to acknowledge that before God, to confess it. And if possible, I want you to confess that to someone else in this room as well. It can be somebody you came with. It can be somebody in your life group who's here. Whatever the case is, if you don't know anyone else in the room to mention it to, maybe you just get out your phone and you text somebody that you know would be willing to have this conversation with you and you just say, hey, I need to tell you something this week. Don't let me forget to talk to you about it. However you need to go about it this morning, but one of the things that 1 John said in that passage was that when we confess we, quote, have fellowship with one another. When we acknowledge these things before others, it actually reinforces, deepens our relationship with other followers of Jesus who are going to be able to help us walk and chart a different way forward. Some of you don't realize right now that the reason your relationships do not have depth to them is because you've actually never chosen to be honest with them. 
And I'm telling you that when you confess your sins to God and to other followers of Jesus, I'm telling you it immediately builds a fellowship and an intimacy with those people that cannot be accomplished any other way. So this morning, why don't we take our sin and why don't we do exactly what 1 John says to do with it? Let's confess it. And let's be forgiven, let's be cleansed, let's be purified from our sin. That's all it takes. So this morning, acknowledge whatever it is before God, before someone else who knows God, and then I want you to come to the tables and take of the bread and the cup as an immediate reminder of the fact that Jesus' body and blood makes purification possible for us, that it washes us clean. So I'll pray, and then we'll do just that.